Guy Hines Jr. took the nation by storm when it came out that he had killed his father and seven members of his extended family in a mobile home that they collectively shared. In October of 2013, Hines was found guilty on eight counts of malice murder. In the state of Georgia, malice murder is considered a felony offense and is described as a homicide that is done with the express or implied desire to do evil. Hines was only 26 when he was sentenced for the killings that took place four years earlier in 2009. In recent years, Guy Hines Jr. has made headlines with his attempts to request a new trial and appeal his conviction as recently as 2021. But before we discuss Heinz's current situation with the Supreme Court and the ruling, let's take a look back at the atrocious crime he committed. Guy Heinz Jr. is classified as a mass murderer due to the fact that he took the lives of eight individuals in one fell swoop. He was born in 1987, and there isn't much information out there about his childhood and what he may have suffered leading up to that fateful day in August. We do know that his mother was not included in the brutal murders. This case gained enough infamy that it's now referred to as the Glynn County Mass Murder. On August 29, 2009, Guy Hines Jr. went to a neighbor's trailer at the New Hope Mobile Home Park and told them that he found his family dead. The neighbor, Margaret Orlinski, called 911 immediately and convinced Hines to get on the phone and make the report himself. During the call, he sounded frantic, stating, my whole family's dead. Don't yell at me. I, I did y'all, my whole family's dead. Okay, tell me what's going on, sir. What? I, I just got home from, I was down right side, I got home just now, and everybody's dead. Who? Oh yeah, my dad's dead. How many people dead. are there? There's like six, my whole family's dead. Okay. It looks like they've been beaten to death. I don't know, man. Okay. It, I mean, I don't know what to do, man. Okay. Take a deep breath. Like, I'm coming for you. Just stay on the line with me, okay? Okay. He told 911, it looks like they've been beaten to death. The cause of the death would later be argued over experts in the public alike in a chilling twist. Hines eventually left Margaret's trailer while 911 was still connected and he could be heard in the background saying that the ambulance better hurry because his young cousin, Michael Toller, was still alive. But, yeah, Tom, to hurry. Do you think Michael's still alive? Someone's still alive? Is Mike still breathing? Oh, I can't go in there. Who's still alive? Which person? He's a uh, young man. He's, he's kind of retired. He's got Down syndrome. Okay. Michael was 19 at the time and had Down syndrome. His face was also smashed in. Michael would later pass away on August 30th. During the call with 911, Hines was warned by both the dispatcher and his neighbor not to touch anything in the trailer, but he had gone back inside anyway. Police arrived to process the scene and Hines was initially arrested for drug possession and tampering with evidence though it wasn't revealed what exactly tampering with evidence meant or how they figured out so quickly that he had. But Friday night of that week, he was charged with murder. Glynn County Police Chief Matt Doring would later state in a news conference 
that two things that led them to believe that Hines was responsible for the killings. He wouldn't reveal what those two things were, but later statements made in the trial point to a gun found as well as several fingerprints that belonged to Hines in the areas that were immediately suspicious. Jimmy Durbin, a director at the coroner's office who was called out to the crime scene, said that it was the worst crime scene he had ever witnessed in my 17-year history in the coroner's office. Just take a minute to process that. An expert in the field was shaken by what he saw in that mobile home. Considering how confined mobile homes usually are, the murder and beatings of eight people must cause irreparable damage and cover literally every surface. The massacre resulted in a local funeral home needing to borrow six hearses from other funeral homes to make the move from the church to the cemetery. The scale of this crime was truly shocking to the small community. Guy Hines' brother and grandfather immediately stepped forward to defend him, telling media outlets that Guy wasn't capable of anything like those brutal murders. Tyler Hines, his brother, spoke at the funeral held for the extended family. I can say there was drug involvement in the house, and I think somebody ripped somebody off and somebody needed to get their money back, the teen revealed. He went on to say that maybe Guy was involved in either getting ripped off or the one doing the ripping off, but he didn't think his older brother was capable of murder. Heinz's grandfather added that Heinz loved his father, Guy Heinz Sr., who was among the victims. I know that in that 911 call that we heard on the news, he was devastated to find his dad dead like that. I just can't believe it unless they really had some proof, his grandfather says. What William Hines, Guy's grandfather, didn't know at the time was that the proof would show up shortly once the trial was finally underway. What's important to know is that not everyone in the mobile home died that day. Three-year-old Brian Jimerson Jr., the son of Heinz's cousin Chrissy Toller, was taken to a hospital in critical condition. He had been brutally beaten. Among the charges for murder, Heinz was also charged with attempted murder in the assault of Brian. Brian would later recover from severe head injuries and was seven at the time of Heinz's trial. Almost all the victims were related to Heinz, including his father, Guy Hines Sr., his aunt, his uncle, and his four cousins. The only non-relation slate at the scene was Joseph West, who was dating one of the cousins at the time, Chrissy Toller. It's unfortunate that he got caught up in what seems like a family affair. Autopsy showed that the victim suffered more than 220 combined wounds, and each succumbed to skull and brain injuries. That alone makes it seem like a violent personal crime, not the attempt of someone who didn't know the victims and just happened upon a trailer full of people. Unfortunately, Guy Hines Jr. family had a long history of unrest and criminal activity. Looking through a list detailing each victim, it's easy to see a pattern. Drug use, desperation for money, domestic disputes, forging, drug possession, and other misdemeanors. However, the community also spoke up about the family's work ethic, their good hearts and care for one another. 
Michelle Toller, one of the youngest victims at 15 years old, was remembered as having a big heart and being close with her father, who she loved to go fishing with. Her death alone is proof that the murder shook the entire community. The school and Michelle's classmates mourned as investigators tried to put together what exactly happened in that trailer. As investigators and lawyers began gathering evidence against Hines, the pending trial hit quite a few roadblocks. The initial indictment was squashed when it became known that there was a felon on the grand jury. Clarence Walthor had been convicted of two felonies in the late 80s and was therefore considered unfit to serve. The district attorney moved forward with a new indictment that Hines pleaded not guilty to. When the trial finally moved forward in 2013, four years after the tragic murders, Glynn County investigators reported that they believed Hines killed his family due to an argument over drugs and money. What they believed set off the incident was Hines's desire for painkillers, specifically a generic form of Darvaset. Michael Toller, Hines's 19-year-old cousin who passed away shortly after the attack, had a prescription for these narcotics. Hines got into a confrontation with his uncle, Michael's father, and not long after, everything went south, and fast. Hines left the mobile home, but he would return with vengeance. During Guy Hines Jr.'s trial, investigators relayed what they believed happened in that day in August. Hines got into a confrontation with relatives over the pills he wanted. When he failed to obtain them, he left the mobile home, but returned shortly after, killing the adults and taking every bit of money in that house along with the pills. The only cash found was $61 in his uncle's pocket. Hines left the scene driving his uncle's Mercury Cougar, which police later searched, and they found Michael Toller's painkillers in the car, which Hines insisted he was borrowing. When money was questioned as a motive, Lieutenant Williams Darris testified that because no one in the family worked didn't mean cash wasn't available. In fact, Joseph West was employed on a shrimp boat and definitely had money on him at the time of his death, as he made a purchase at a convenience store earlier. When arrested, Hines had a large amount of cash on him that didn't quite add up. He told the police that he had purchased about $100 in cocaine earlier, but had more cash than he should have if that purchase actually happened. So did he lie about purchasing the drugs? Or did he come across the cash elsewhere, like in the pockets of his dead family members? This was likely one of the first things that tipped off officers, that something was suspicious about Hines' actions that day. One stumble in the case was related to the number of people murdered and whether or not it was possible for one individual to manage that amount of carnage on their own, specifically going up to a large group of other adults and killing everyone there. Eight people is a lot to physically take on, especially in a space as small as a mobile home. But Lieutenant Darris pointed out that most of the individuals in that trailer had been killed while they were asleep in bed, bludgeoned to death with a weapon that they thought was most likely a shotgun barrel. Only a few had the chance to defend themselves. Darris reported that the butt of the shotgun in question was found next to Heinz's uncle's head, but the barrel was never recovered. Another gun would show up shortly after. 
even with more evidence pointing in Hines' direction. Hines's aunt, mother of four to those murdered, later spoke out about her belief that Hines was responsible. He knows what time they go to sleep, she said, believing that the murders were carefully planned out ahead of time. If Hines was able to show up after everyone was asleep, he essentially had a head start in taking them out one by one, in taking the family by surprise. As the trial continued, more evidence was brought forward that made Hines' actions that day seem suspicious. A friend of Hines's uncle relayed how Hines and his cousin showed up at Fort King George Motel to bring him a pair of pliers. They were driving the Mercury, which the friend immediately found suspicious. He knew that Russell Toller Sr. didn't let anyone drive his car, not even close friends. He himself had never been allowed to drive the Mercury, and when Hines showed up, he asked the friend for drugs, specifically cocaine. Throughout the trial, Hines' lawyers tried to argue that the officers collecting evidence and handling the crime scene hadn't followed procedure and had botched the whole operation. This isn't an uncommon argument when it comes to criminal trials, but Lieutenant Darris stuck to his guns, stating that he worked with the crew regularly and that he had faith they were doing everything properly that day. The defense pointed out that some officers hadn't worn Tyvek suits while collecting blood evidence, and Darris acknowledged that discrepancy, but it seemed to be a small chip in an otherwise solid case against Hines. In the end, the evidence that was collected drew their attention overwhelmingly in his direction. During the trial, the defense witness, Michael Knox, reported that he found many faults with the investigation including breaks in the chain of custody of evidence and discarding items that were likely evidence, as well as crime scene contamination. Police Chief Matt Doring fully admitted that this was an issue, but that it was one that had been dealt with, and that didn't change the evidence that was found pointing to Hines very specifically. 1. Hines had taken a shotgun from the house and put it in the trunk of the car before calling for help. 2. Michael Toller's prescription pain medication and cell phone with dried blood on it were also found on the car. 3. Hines was wearing a pair of bloody gym shorts underneath khaki shorts when he was taken into custody. The gym shorts later tested as having blood from the three of the victims, which was also on his flip-flops. While this wasn't too unusual for shoes, for blood to have gotten under his pair of shorts was unlikely unless he had very close contact with the victims, like during a struggle. And finally, for a document with Russ and Toller Jr.'s blood and Heinz's fingerprints was found next to the nightstand. Eventually, Heinz's fingerprints would also be found on the shotgun, which was covered in his uncle's blood but missing the barrel. Hines claimed he had removed the gun from the scene because it was stolen, but it wasn't. This seems to be the same gun that officers initially found in the mobile home, which Hines apparently returned to remove. Sample of Hines' own blood would later show that he was under the influence of the stolen painkillers, marijuana, and cocaine. In the end, the main argument was that Hines 
admittedly under the influence of cocaine that night, had failed to get Michael Tolwa's prescription and decided to return to the mobile home and take it by force. In doing so, he killed his entire family in a fit of rage. But what makes him a true monster is his attack on the younger children, including three-year-old Brian. On October 25, 2013, Guy Hines Jr. was found guilty of eight counts of murder. The jury deliberated for four hours before returning the verdicts, which included eight malice murder counts, an aggravated assault with intent to murder, and two drug charges. Hines' younger brother, Tyler, was visibly upset and shouting curses in court once the sentence was read. Under Georgia law, Hines was automatically sentenced to life, but it was up to the judge to determine if that sentence would include a possibility of parole or not. While other members of the Toller family were present, they chose not to comment at the time of sentencing. Instead, they were later reported as having said that they didn't want Hines to get the death penalty, instead wanting him out in the prison population. It's hard to tell whether this is because they weren't convinced Hines was guilty or because they wanted him to suffer. Many people see death penalties as an easy way out, when the victims have given up their lives. Additionally, criminals who have attacked children are often beaten by other inmates. Although the evidence seems stacked against him, Hines wasn't going away without a fight. In 2017, he requested a new trial, his attorneys claiming that there was missing and mishandled evidence. At this time, Hines actually had a girlfriend, which is a bit baffling considering the whole situation, and that the girlfriend freely spoke with the media. She stated that she and Hines were hoping that the appeal would be granted, and that they had been dating since 2012. Among the errors detailing in the motion was the claim that the jury didn't follow instructions or understand the evidence. Hines insisted that they wanted him to prove he was innocent, instead of wanting the prosecution to prove he was guilty, which goes against our societal standard, innocent until proven guilty. Other claims on the list include that items were destroyed and fingerprint comparisons misplaced. Hines blamed not only the prosecutors, but police chief Matt Doring. A media outlet managed to contact a neighbor of Hines who testified in the 2013 trial. The neighbor stated that there had been a lot of information missing in that trial, and she supported a new trial moving forward. The silence of the victim's family seemed to assert their belief all those years later that Hines was a cold-blooded murderer. Hines' request for a new trial was denied, and in 2020 he appealed to the state Supreme Court. His argument was that the removal of a juror during the trial, due to a heated argument and the juror knowing Hines through his daughter's friendship with the criminal, had interrupted a fair process. But the Supreme Court found that Hines understood what he was conceding to when the juror was replaced. If Hines agreed to the replacement, the prosecution wouldn't seek the death penalty. After being shot down for years, Hines' last argument is that investigators refused to ever consider another suspect in the murder of his seven family members in Joseph West, the eighth unrelated victim. While the prosecution and police chief were upfront about botching some of the initial evidence collection, 
Even with those errors, it seems obvious that Guy Hines Jr. committed the murders that day in August of 2009. He had motive, clearly fueled by a drug addiction and a violent attitude. The fact that the victims were close family didn't stop him, but perhaps that was the result of the cocktail flooding through his veins. Either way, it's an undeniable truth that at some point, Hines returned to the trailer and made efforts to hide evidence, including a gun that was covered in his relative's blood and his fingerprints. An odd choice, even if Hines was telling the truth and the gun had been stolen, which it wasn't. No matter the case, it seems like Hines will serve out life in prison without the possibility of parole.